Welcome back to the most important podcast in the world. I'm your host, Reese Wood, and today's guest, Phil Anderson. Phil is someone that I've kept up with since around 2015 when he declared his candidacy for state assembly in Wisconsin as a libertarian. In 2016, he ran for U.S. Senate, and in 2018, Phil ran for governor. Phil is also the former chair of the Libertarian Party of Wisconsin. If politics is your jam, if politics is what you like to talk about, maybe if politics is something you're tired of hearing about and you're ready for a big change with politics, make sure you don't miss this episode. This might be the most important political discussion, at least that we've had since, well, this is only episode two. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Most important podcast, episode two. We have Phil Anderson with Phil. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having Uh, me, Reese. So, Phil, we have a lot to talk about, but we're going to kick it off talking about what you're doing right now. Uh, To me, this, you know, what you're doing right now is very important. Uh, You're running for Wisconsin U.S. Senate on the slogan, is it disrupt the corruption? Yep. There you go. Right there. Right wherever it is. Right there. (laughs) So I want to start, I want to ask you, tell us what you mean about disrupt the corruption. Well, I think a lot of what's gone wrong in in politics and and the federal government is about uh, the government not representing who they're supposed to be representing, and that is their constituents, and just doing the bidding of uh, whoever's giving them money, donors, unions, corporations, whoever. And so any chance that we might have of restoring government to people, and in my mind, reducing it... uh, rests in being able to take control back of the government from the people that have basically bought it, bought it and bought politicians. So that whole that whole scenario is about corruption, right? It's supposed to be a representative government where we send people to DC to represent us and to do things for us that are beneficial to us or to restrict the government from doing things that are bad bad for us and they don't do that at all. They do whatever they're paid to do. So that's the primary task. And the reason that I'm leading with that and not talking about more specific issues that libertarians might care more about is because we don't have a chance of talking about how to spend tax money, how to reduce taxes, how to, you know, basically spend the peace dividend, whatever there would be, bringing our troops home and ending all the wars overseas until we get back control of our government. So let's tackle the primary issue. And hopefully that resonates with people of various, uh, political ideologies, they see the same problem that I do. And I think that they do. I think most people do. Um, and we can get down to once, once we correct that problem one way or another, then we can get down to the actual how government should work or how and how it shouldn't work. What's most interesting uh, to me about you, Phil, is uh, so there are candidates in every election that represent what people are talking about. And uh, there's always a Republican, there's always a Democrat, usually most races, unless it's a nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but they're talking about uh, the most talked about issues at the time. But a third party person, an independent person comes out from left field with other things that are actually going on and just not talked about. And like you said, these are things what you're representing might resonate with a lot of people, but what are some of the, the things that go on uh, in government, like you said, corruption wise in Wisconsin, at least, is there like, we have things like the Wisconsin economic development corporation, um, but elections in general, maybe you could talk about some of the things that go on in recent elections that uh, you've ran as a candidate and you know firsthand what kind of corruption goes on in an election. But tell people about what does happen during an election, I guess. Okay. Well, primarily, people should realize that the candidates that they think they have choices between were basically pre-selected by the parties, the, the Democrats and Republicans anyway. Anyone who's on a ballot in November has been pre-screened, pre-checked, and they go through this process of having primaries, but the people that the candidates that make it to the primaries and are considered viable are ones that are basically paid for by the people that contribute money to the DNC and the RNC and the state parties in an effort to control the government. So the the illusion of choice um, is one that I work against because we don't really 
the people that vote for Democrats and Republicans anyway, don't really have a choice. I think that was um, pretty apparent in 2016 when people that were uh, supporters of Bernie Sanders, uh, he, he had a lot of momentum uh, going throughout the campaign. He actually won Wisconsin. And then uh, Hillary Clinton still got the nomination because she was the one that was going to do the bidding of the big of the big party donors. Um, and so Bernie Sanders ended up having to bail out and they gave him a, a house in Florida in exchange for it or something like that. But that's true even in local elections, too. For example, there is one uh, Republican that's already declared for uh, U.S. Senate for the seat that I'm running for. Um, her name is Rajani. She is a very smart, uh, very capable person. She has been um, the president of college Republicans at UW-Stevens Point, very successfully grew their membership like four or five times. But she doesn't stand a chance because the rest of the, the Republicans are waiting to see where the money lands. And it's probably not going to land behind her. It's going to land behind somebody like uh, Sheriff Clark or or uh, Rebecca Cleefish or somebody like that. The, the people that have been tried and true supporters of the party apparatus and not necessarily the ideology that the party represents. So that's that's pretty much the first part. Um, but even as you watch the rest of the, the the primaries, you know, especially the presidential ones, right? There, Bobby Kennedy is running against uh, Biden. There's a number of Republicans running already. Uh, it's really about jockeying for for campaign contributions. So let me appeal to your listeners, anybody who watched or who goes back and watches the Republican debate that was held in Milwaukee a couple of weeks ago. You see a lot of positions being put forward that are in favor of very warlike stance towards the rest of the world, you know, rapidly supporting uh, sending money and even troops to Ukraine, a very strong talk about uh, confronting China over Taiwan. Um, even a few of the candidates talking about sending the U.S. military into Mexico to fight drug cartels. Why is that such a big deal when? public support is fading to a certain extent for the war in Ukraine and, and the public's appetite for war anywhere is getting lower and lower. The reason is because those candidates are looking for money from Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, et cetera, et cetera. They're looking for campaign contributions to make them viable amongst the other Republicans. So it doesn't matter right now how well their positions are polling or how well they represent uh, the public. It It's only about what can I say to make People with deep pockets give me money. And the military industrial complex is one of those. Uh, big oil, big pharma, you name it. Those are the people that they're appealing to now, the entities that they're appealing to now, and not to the public. And not not they're not trying to win votes now. They're trying to make money now. And that part of the process is really corrupt. Now, when they eventually there's a nominee, then that person, having collected all of the, the fundraisers and all the all the donors will then move forward and probably campaign a little bit more moderately and towards getting votes. But in the process now, it's all about money. And that's how you win a primary is by raising money. So the whole process is flawed and corrupt from start to finish. And that's just the election part of it, let alone the governing part of it. So um, I was going to ask you, you know, the most important topic to you, and I'm pretty sure I know, but I wanted to ask you, war. And now I could ask you about Ukraine. I could ask you about past wars, but war in general. Uh, tell us why this issue is important to you. Well, it's it's really not only a political issue, it's a moral issue. And not even just a moral issue, because, you know, most wars are started on lies. Every every war that the United States has been involved in or military conflict since World War II was started on lies. Lives are lost. We're using the strength of our military. I say we, obviously you and I don't support that, but it is our supposedly representative government that's going and doing these things uh, is killing people all over the world, toppling governments. There's a long list of governments that have been toppled and even uh, our foreign policy. That's not quite war, but the foreign policy around sanctions and economic restrictions on other on other countries doesn't affect the governments. It affects the people. So you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids uh, dying in the Middle East and in other parts of the world because of American led economic sanctions um, that are all about, in the end, they're all about uh, whether that government is is cooperating with our foreign policy initiatives and our, our ideas of having the dollar rule the world. So the whole thing is immoral and it's bad for Americans, even the Americans that aren't being sent overseas, even the Americans that don't, you know, don't, uh, that aren't veterans that are uh, disabled or struggling with PTSD or whatever, 
uh, all the things that we normally consider part of the, the bad part of war, people dying and people being sick and hurt, uh, our, our economy is suffering too. We, we spend uh, so much money in the, uh, on our defense budget. It's just ridiculous. And uh, all of that, you know, we, we send more money to Ukraine to fight a war over there that we shouldn't be involved in. And then, you know, for example, President Biden gives $700 to each resident of Maui. Now, I'm not suggesting that, a, uh, that, that I would prefer a government where we're handing out money, you know, hand over fist for, for uh, disasters. But certainly you can see where the priority lies with this administration. It would be pretty much the same with the Republican administration. Um, and all that matters. The deficit uh, is has a negative influence on inflation. The debt, you know, uh, undermines the value of the dollar and and the credit of the United States government. All of these things affect our daily lives in ways that maybe aren't we don't see as immediately, but they're all tied. <clears throat> they're all tied together from the very most violent part of war to the economic side of war at home. Uh, it's pervasive, and I think it's one. And as a matter of fact, I know it's one where people from various parts of the, of the political spectrum agree. There has been, and this has been, um, uh, you know, to their credit, there are Democrats and Republicans in Congress that wouldn't normally work together that are, are working against sending so much more money to Ukraine and have talked about, you know, peace initiatives and things like that, trying to get our government to the table to negotiate. And I'll say as a side note, and not an unimportant side note, that our current U.S. Senator, who I'm running against, has been absolutely silent regarding Ukraine. And as a matter of fact, uh, myself and a few other peace activists had a meeting with her policy advisors uh, online about two months ago. And they basically said that Senator Baldwin would not come out in any way, shape or form in favor of peace or a ceasefire or negotiating because it would affect the strategic uh, position of our forces in Europe. So she is all about continuing to fight the war as effectively violently as possible without airing you know people's legitimate concerns that the war is misguided that people are dying and that maybe we should consider another alternative wow that's and you know the democrats are supposed to be the anti-war party oh that's yeah. that's the party i supported uh when when there was a time before I was supporting independent and uh, libertarian leaning candidates, a time before that for me, and I, I familiarized myself with the Democrats and they were, that was my party. I felt growing up that I was more of a Democrat, but mainly on the topic of war, everything you just described. These are the things that I think resonate with a lot of left leaning people, uh, you know, the anti-war sentiment, but as you said, with Tammy Baldwin, there will be no, there will be no peace, no call for peace. Uh, why is that? Why do you, why do you think? Well, let me tell you a story. It's probably one I've told you before and that you're aware of. But uh, for everyone that serves in Congress, both the United States Senate and the House of Representatives, it's the expectation they're going to spend some of their time raising money for their party not just for their own candidacy, but for their party. So every time a, a, a senator or somebody in the House is assigned a good uh, committee position or a committee chair, ways and means, uh, whatever it might be that's a, a juicy position, they're expected to raise money uh, on behalf of the RNC or DNC, whatever party they belong to. They make phone calls, they go to events, they speak at places, they get speakers fees that go to those particular entities. And the goal is that they, by doing so, will then also get campaign contributions from the RNC or DNC, whichever is appropriate, but also maybe direct ones from those industries that they can then help by virtue of being on those committees or chairing those committees. So it's all sort of a circular pay for play sort of thing. And the reason Tammy Baldwin and most Democrats, um, even even the ones that are considered to be uh, like an example uh Alexandria Ocasio, what's her name? AOC. Sorry, mm -hmm. I don't actually remember her real name anymore. Uh, Pretty close. Who used to be a very much like an outside of the Democratic Party is now not talking about peace either. Uh, not very often, anyway. Um, they all basically get bought off because the, the the point is that if you play along 
with what the contributors, in this case, the military industrial complex, who profits immensely from war all over the world. If you play along with them, then you continue to get campaign contributions and you won't get primaried. Uh, if you don't play along, then you won't get the committee assignments, which means you won't get campaign contributions from these big donors, and you'll likely get primary to be at risk at the, during the next election cycle. So Tammy Baldwin does it from an absence of principle, because if she were principled, especially since uh, the U.S. Senate term is six years, she'd have time to take principled positions and fight for things like peace or ending the persecution of Julian Assange, which is a First Amendment issue, but also a war issue, uh, she could take the time to do that and still get a lot of work done in D.C., even if she were primary or less likely to be reelected every six years. But what she has chosen to do is to play along and to cement her spot in the, the establishment of the Democratic Party for as long as possible. And she knows that most people who vote don't pay that much attention and will just accept whatever they hear about their own candidates and their own party and also accept what they hear the negative things about the opposing side and just vote so she's not really i mean i hope she's at risk <laughs> i'm running against her but uh she doesn't feel like she's at risk because she's done everything she can to make sure she's got plenty of money and that she doesn't say anything silly or out of line so that those democratic voters who uh, generally vote Democrat without um, without too much looking into it will continue to do so for her. So for people who classic liberals or anyone who ever in their life said something about the system or uh, big government or anything about government being intrusive in any way, for a person who has any belief along those lines, it's hard to find you would have to say it's hard to find a place within the two parties right now. So mm -hmm. I know uh, for me, I think it was 2014. I saw your first, one of your first campaigns, I think it was for state assembly. Yep. 2014 uh, back. And so what stood out was that uh, it was almost everything about the campaign. You could tell the difference from a major campaign. Now, who are you, uh, who are you running against in that election? I was running against Rob Call, who was the incumbent, but just a one-term incumbent, but had previously been the mayor of Monona, which is a suburb of Madison, and uh, was also part of the district that we were running for. So a very difficult candidate to run against. I was running head-to-head. -head. There was not a Republican running in that uh, election. Rob was very popular, and not just because he was an establishment Democrat, but because his profession was, he's an attorney and a lobbyist, and he was the main lobbyist for a, a group called the Wisconsin Construction Group, which represents road builders at the state capitol. So he was really about a system. I mean, not, I'm not impugning his character or anything, uh, but he really was as establishment as, as he could possibly be. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you a little story about the 2014 uh, that illustrates even more about how moneyed interests spend money on candidates or not. In 2014, I was a realtor. Um, I'm still a real estate broker. And that back then I was just an agent for First Weber. Jim Imhoff, who at the time was the CEO of First Weber, the largest real estate uh, corporation in uh, Wisconsin, was the head of the political committee for uh, Wisconsin Realtors Association. So when I applied, as I'm sure Rob called it, to get their endorsement, I actually got a chance to meet Jim Imhoff in person and talk to him about it. He did me that courtesy, which I, I thought was leading to uh, hey, Phil, you know, you're better on property rights issues. You're better on the issues that we care about than Rob Call is. So even though you're a bit of an underdog, we're going to endorse you. But that was not the case. And I don't blame Jim. He's a great guy. Uh, but the way these lobbies work is they're trying to get access to the candidate and influence with the candidate once they're elected. So Jim told me, we're not going to endorse you, Phil, because Rob Call is going to win. And once he's, you know, back in, in Madison, in the Capitol building, we want to be able to, you know, help write legislation that benefits the, our industry and benefits property owners throughout Wisconsin. So if we endorse you, that's going to make it more difficult. So it wasn't about principle. It was about what was going to get done once somebody won. And the same, the same forces are at work in federal elections, maybe much more so actually, you know, people talk about big pharma, big oil, um, 
the military industrial complex, the teachers union, the trial lawyers union, whoever it might be. A lot of those, with maybe the exception of being the teachers union, give a lot of money to candidates on both sides. They're trying to pick winners and losers so they have more influence after the election. They're not necessarily trying to get things done in terms of electing the best candidates or the candidates that most reflect their values or positions. What they want is to, to be able to work with people after the fact. So they're in effect paying for access before the election so they can have access after the election. And that was the case in 2014 in that race. Not that the Realtors Association um, endorsement would have necessarily uh, affected the outcome of the election all that much, but that is how they think. And in a way it's understandable. Once the government and the politicians can be bought, once they make themselves available for sale, then of course business is gonna buy them because that's a path to profit. And uh, I don't blame the Wisconsin realtors or all the big the big uh, industries for trying to influence politicians. That's what they need to do. That's their, their goal is to be profit driven. The problem is that the government is available to be bought and the politicians and the two major parties are available to be bought. And if they're not available to be bought, they're probably not likely to get reelected. So that's what stood out about your run for assembly. I was able to reach out to you through Facebook, I think at the time, mm -hmm. way back in 2014. Now, I don't know if anybody back in 2014 tried to reach a candidate for any office through Facebook, but you might not have had luck and probably not any time after that, even try it today. You might have some luck, but you're likely to get a staffer, some kind of staff member, lucky if you get the actual person. Yeah. Uh, but you were easy to reach. And uh, so that was an easy way to identify that this was not your average candidate. Uh, at least that was my perspective. But so I knew there was something different going on. And even at that time, I had uh, just in the election prior, I probably supported plenty of regular run of the mill Democrats, people mm -hmm. who I was unaware were being supported financially for reasons that I wouldn't really support. Um, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of people, getting money out of politics, big money, is a huge issue. Uh, but it seems we do keep supporting, whether it's Democrat or Republican, the very same people, like you said, uh, with Tammy Baldwin or with uh, other candidates, you'll have to see a long track record. Most of the time, that's what you see. It's, it's hardly ever a different face, like I said earlier, coming out of left field with something that does resonate with people, but is lesser talked about. It doesn't happen very commonly, but uh, one thing you've done and one thing that I really appreciate is you've been consistent over the years. You did that election in 2014. You have ran almost every election since. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I, I did not run in 2022. Um, 2020 was a strange time. I ran as a Republican, although I never joined the party. Um, basically, and you know, just because there are people that try to paint that as a negative thing. There were three of us uh, libertarians, myself, my son, Samuel and uh, Terry Lyon, who were approached to run in Dane County as Republicans, but running libertarian campaigns. And so the trade-off was that we would get to sort of see behind the curtain and see how the Republicans ran elections in exchange for maybe drawing some votes for them. Obviously it didn't matter in the, in the long run because no Republicans going to win in Dane County and Trump got beat in Wisconsin. Uh, but I did learn quite a bit about and some good things. I mean, to be honest, uh, Republicans and Democrats are brilliant at running campaigns. I mean, they're they're devious <laughs> and <laughs> they're clever, uh, maybe maybe evil sometimes, but uh, but they're also very smart. So I learned some things and that's why I ran as a Republican in 2020. Uh, but the rest of the time, 2014, 16, 18, were all libertarian campaigns as well as this this obviously this one, too. So you're one person that I can actually ask about campaigning during covid i ran during that election it mm -hmm. was such a challenge but it, i think it was something about covid going on that gave me energy to I, it felt like things were going in such a bad direction at yeah. least in the state and probably through the whole country yeah and no one knew where it was going to go uh, but like you said there was three other you and two other libertarians uh, I ran, I announced as an independent libertarian, 
But the challenges to even get on the ballot in that election, like you said, you ran with the Republican Party. You you were at least able to get on the ballot. You've ran in past elections also. So you really have a grassroots base that does support you in addition to any support you got from the party. But um, so the challenges during COVID, what were some of the things, even though, you know, it was a different aspect for my campaign versus your campaign, tell people what it was actually like, because it was very different than any other election. Yeah, that was strange. And I did a different experience than you did because I was running, running as a Republican that time. There was a little bit of an infrastructure. It's pretty small, but dedicated in Dane County being in the the vast minority there. But um, there were people that were uh, against the mandates and working against the COVID hype, against the economic shutdown, et cetera, that were at least willing to network and and get signatures of like-minded people. So I wasn't in the same position you are, as I imagine you were, where you were still having to go out amongst the general public and get enough signatures to get on the, on the, uh, on the ballot. Uh, That being said, uh, people knew that we were out there uh, maskless, you know, or uh, promoting um, skepticism of what the government was saying about COVID, the masks, the mandates, et cetera, shutting schools down. So there was a lot of pushback on that, like uh, Democrats talking about uh, if you see somebody with a clipboard walking through your neighborhood and they're not stopping at your house, it means they're probably trying to gather signatures for a Republican go out and harass them. Um, you know, mm. uh, we did get yelled at at a few places. We, what we did too is, um, and I would suggest this, you know, God forbid we have another attempt at the government shutting things down like this, but, um, you know, we had drive-by stuff too. So we would be at a park and ride. We did it in Verona and in, uh, the Dutch mill park and ride, which is on the East side of Madison, where we would just be out there and people that wanted to support knew we were there and could drive by. And then it could still be sort of like arm's length, like we weren't at their house. So even if they were uh, supporters who were, you know, concerned about COVID and were taking precautions, maybe elderly folks or people with pre-existing conditions, whatever, they could still, if they wanted to support, mask up, put gloves on, whatever was going on at the time, pull up, we could have somebody pass them a clipboard. We could in- instruct them at a distance as to how to fill it out. Uh, and, you know, thankfully in that election cycle, uh, at running for assembly, I only needed 200, uh, 200, um, signatures to get on the ballot, 200 verified signatures. I can't imagine what it would have been like running for governor or U S Senate and having to get 2000, uh, statewide in that environment, because, uh, especially in Dane County and Milwaukee County, people were just so freaked out and so, um, scared, you know? And they, understandably so, uh, the government was saying scary, you know, a lot of it lies, but scary things. Right. Um, so people were pretty radicalized against that. It would have been much more difficult to have to get that many signatures. But for me in 2020, I had enough of a network using the Republican network that we could get to 200 without, I mean, it was a struggle, but we, we got there and we had the infrastructure to do it. I was out there like a goofball wearing my mask, still going door to door. And I thought I would cross paths with a Democrat doing the same or or something like that. But there was seriously no one. The streets were dead. And that was through the whole campaign cycle. We did a park tour and mm-hmm. 14 parks in Janesville. It, there was nothing going on during COVID. But yeah. we did all that just to see, you know, because like I said at the time, it, it was not only different, but the fear was really high with a lot of people. And uh, it... It's different now, but I, hopefully we don't go back to that ever. I know a lot of people are talking about it, but mm-hmm. um, it's ho- hopefully not. Well, I think one of the one of the, the things that was going on in the psychology, the public psychology, if that's an actually accurate term, is that people were really nervous about if they were complying, if they were if they were intending to comply, if they were doing a good enough job, and people that were skeptical and maybe not complying in their own home or whatever, if they were going to get caught and be in trouble. So there's a tremendous amount of paranoia, I guess, amongst whoever in politics or whoever in public, whatever political ideology they ascribe to or whatever party of somebody knocking on your door and asking a question or having a clipboard because it just seemed like an opportunity to get spied on or to get denounced uh, or whatever, you know, 
And uh, so everyone was a lot more nervous and a lot more pulled back. And I don't think we've recovered from that yet. Uh, there's still uh, sort of a change in the way society works. I see that in my in my apartment building, for example. Uh, previous to the COVID, it was more common for people to say hello, people to hold the elevator for each other, right? That was a thing. If you got to the elevator and there was somebody coming up the hall behind you, oh, should I hold the elevator for you? Now, even post-COVID, people just get on the elevator. They don't look to share it. They'd rather have that person wait and get their own elevator later. And the person that's waiting would rather wait. There's a, a change in how we uh, relate to each other publicly. Uh, it's kind of sad. I mean, I understand it, that people have been influenced in that way and that it's a good practice for hygiene or public health to be separated and to be careful about these things. Sure. However, it affects society in ways where people just don't feel like they know their neighbors, don't feel part of a community. Even when you, even when you live in the same building or the same neighborhood, people are even more isolated from each other. And I think that contributes to the fractured politics we have where people don't see each other as, you know, if you're on the other side of the political fence, I hate using those like right, left fence aisle uh, analogies. But if you're if somebody believes differently than you, you're less able to see them as a real human being with real concerns and similarities to yourself now than you were pre-COVID. And that's that stinks because that that contributes to the Definitely. hateful atmosphere in, in politics and on social media. And so that's why I wanted to ask or at least start at uh, the COVID campaign era because mm -hmm. there has been you know like you said a, a growing sense of people having something wrong just something wrong's going on people are not feeling the same they were before covid and there's been i would agree some kind of loss in humanity towards your fellow human being and i don't know if other people are sensing this so like you said i agree that something like that's going on um, you can be driving down the street and experience it with people in traffic. And it's just mm -hmm. a urgency to be more individualized. Now, uh, as a libertarian, we get uh, libertarians get this uh, a bad rap all the time for being too much individualists. You know, if you want to get rid of government and think about the individual, you're going to hurt your neighbor. You're going to cause some unintended repercussion to your neighbor. That's what people say at least some of our critics. Uh, but as you said, uh, we are still voting in the same career people almost every election. They're not libertarians. They're not independent candidates. They're not third party in any way. Um, so the, the problems and the solutions seem to be evident. Um, at least that's for people who have been, I don't know, you and I candidates uh, for other people, it's probably really hard to see. So I hope people listening to this interview get a little more insight that possibly you wouldn't get somewhere else. I wanted to ask you, though, Phil, uh, you know, on the topic of negative things, uh, what's your worst experience ever as a candidate? You've been in a lot of election cycles. <laughs> you've done a lot of things, but worst experience. Well, in general, it's when people try to tell me what I believe. Like you libertarians always, you know, whatever. You want corporations to run the world. The, the previous uh, lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, uh, Mandela Barnes, said that uh, to myself and, and my running mate, Patrick Baird, in 2018 at a forum at UW-Milwaukee. He said, you, you libertarians, you want corporations to run the world and then just there'll be a Walmart on every corner and there won't be any natural world left or whatever, which was completely preposterous. But because he, we were in a room full of people that were friendly to him and not not so friendly or at least aware of us, it you know it sounded like gospel coming from him. So that's the sort of thing that's really negative. In particular, there was an incident in twenty, I don't remember if it was seventeen or eighteen, where somebody with the same attitude showed up at the uh, Great Midwest Marijuana Harvest Fest uh, at UW Madison and started yelling at me, knowing I was a candidate. And telling me, you libertarians, you just want people to starve, you hate children, blah, blah, blah. And I was very, very calm, but he got so heated. He was right, he was right in my face, yelling, and I've got this uh, a video of it somewhere. And he was actually like spitting on me. I mean, not intending to like like spit on me, but basically just spitting in my face, just so upset. And he had he had me all wrong, he had our party all wrong, our ide ideology all wrong, he had it all wrong, but he was so upset 
upset that, and I was being calm that he wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to me as somebody that could tell him something or even just respond to his issues or his negative thoughts about what I stand for. And a lot of us stand for, he just wanted to yell and it was just really unpleasant. And, um, I think that's indicative of a larger uh, problem that anyone who's running independent or third party or even a dissenting Democrat or Republican has run into is that people have their minds made up about things to a certain extent. Social media, among other things, reinforces, you know, confirmation bias. So when you believe that um, anyone who's pro-abortion is a baby killer, you can go online at Facebook, Twitter, or wherever, Reddit, who cares, whatever it is, and find people that agree with you and they will cite evidence and spurious sources and whatever. And so then when you get out in public and you meet somebody who might be against abortion, then rather than having a discussion about it, trying to figure out or represent your views or have a debate or, an argue, or a real argument, it just turns into a yelling match because you've been filled with such hate. And so there's a lot of people out there who, and this is between, you know, Trump supporters and Biden supporters or people that are supporting RFK Jr. or whoever, it just turns into this hateful yelling match where you're telling the other person who they are rather than asking them who they are or just trying to find out and have a discussion. On that note, one of the most beautiful things, one of the, I don't know if you follow Bill Maher, uh, comedian and has been very successful on HBO with uh, whatever his show is called on HBO, but very successful. Uh, and he is um, an atheist, a militant atheist, and very uh, pro-abortion rights. But he said on his show a couple of months ago that everyone needs to stop talking about this particular issue in terms of women haters and baby killers, because it's just not true. We know people every day who have different opinions on different political issues, and we work with them, we, uh, they're in our families, we go to church with them, we are in softball leagues with them, whatever, we do business with them. They're not monsters. So let's set aside all the ridiculous rhetoric and as human beings come together and talk about our differences. And he he said he's never going to agree to be against abortion, but at least in order to talk about how to manage the situation or to debate like what should be on the books in terms of laws or get to that point, we need to set aside all the ridiculous hate and, and the name calling. And I really appreciated that as somebody that differs, uh, has a different opinion than he does on, on, a, on a few issues. Um, that's the sort of talk and the sort of position that I have with in regards to the people that oppose me politically or have different opinions as, that I do. And I think that's the healthiest way to have a democracy and a republic is to be able to talk about what the real issues are and to not turn it personal or hateful. But that's the environment we live in. That's the uphill battle that I have as a candidate, a third party candidate, is that people think they already know what I stand for and what I believe and what libertarianism is. And usually it's a warped, caricatured version of that, that they've been fed from some other source and not from an actual libertarian. Tradition, traditional thoughts, things that we just carry on for no reason. I know what you mean. Uh, I've actually been watching Bill Maher's podcast with a writer's strike. He's been doing more frequent episodes. Feels oh, like the, uh, the random, the club random, like in his basement. Yeah. That one. Yeah, I, I call it Bill Maher likes being mean to good people, but you know, he, he's a funny guy. It, yeah, the he's, podcasts he's, are a little weird, but he's, he's fair. I think he's, he's got his positions. He's not going to change them, but he hears people out generally speaking. Um, totally. Uh, when I say he likes being mean, uh, well, so he, he one does. thing he says really good that I agree with what you said. Yeah, we should have debates. We should yeah. highly debate a lot of things uh, to immense degrees, but we don't. And there's no forums for that. There's no areas that are being facilitated by government in any way, uh, let alone by our representatives. I know in the in 2020, that was one thing that I said. I said, hey, you know, if I get this state assembly seat, I'll facilitate additional conversations between local law enforcement and the community. Mm -hmm. Because during that time, we had riots and we had things that the community was very... Uh, outspoken about things were going on like we said riots but th something need to be addressed mm -hmm. and a place to talk doesn't exist there is no proper forum uh, but that's 
that's kind of up to our representatives, I feel like. Uh, maybe government should be doing something like that. But it's well, who we keep once, electing, isn't it? And once once they're elected, they've got no interest in that um, because they, well, they've got elected and now it's their job to do what, what their party and what they are getting paid to do and not represent the public and not to facilitate that. And even during the election process, I was just talking to a very, very good friend of mine um, a few days ago, and he said, you know, he's tried to contact his elected representative and ask some specific questions about policy. And uh, and that that he's just getting a form, you know, bot created email responses. And, you know, that's unfortunate because while it is difficult to keep up, I imagine, at the U.S. Senate level or congressional level with all the questions you might get via email, it's still uh, that person's job to try to respond and have staff respond or whatever. Um, but the reason that that is the way it is, is because, so, again, so many people just vote strict party line or just believe whatever uh, short six word version of the candidate or and the opponent that they've been fed, that that's how elections are won with money, with commercials, with short little sound bites. And there's risk when a candidate or an elected official opens up and talks to the public. That's another reason why you see in all these candidate forums uh, and, and Donald Trump pointed it out in 2016 when he was booed about talking about trying to not pay taxes. And he, he said, well, all the people in this room are, are, are Clinton donors, you know, and that's why they're here. All of those are all completely vetted people. They're either donors or they're uh, higher ups in, you know, some organization that supports a candidate. Um, it's all programmed. It's all programmed with to create an illusion of choice. And so that there's not a wild card person in there asking about, I don't know, peace or corruption and asking that question directly to a candidate live on camera or on audio and, and them stumbling over an answer and that turning into the public, you know, realizing what's actually going on behind the curtain, behind the curtain. And then, you know, and then elections change over that revolutions start over that. So it's all very scripted, controlled. They'd rather not answer constituents and rather not have debates. And Joe Biden is the perfect example of that. He's not going to debate in this election cycle. He's just assuming he'll be the nominee. How can how can Democrats stand for that? How can they say, well, you know, I, I voted for Biden in 2020, but I've got additional questions that he that he can answer if he wants my vote. We don't want you know, don't you want him on a stage with with RFK Jr. or whoever is going to run as a Democrat to have them own up to things and maybe provide some additional context for things that you've supported them on? It's a mystery to me, but they, apparently they don't, at least not enough. So to, to the point where Biden's going to debate and he's a guy that if he were on stage would certainly fumble. He would certainly say something silly that could be turned into a soundbite. And that's why. That is why things are the way they are. That's why we don't have continuing discussions like you wanted to have if you were elected to the assembly. That's why there's not debates. That's that's why there's not debates in, in 2018. Uh, the governor candidates who are not Democrats and Republicans, we had four people that were running on the ballot, not as a D or an R. And we had three debates between the four of us uh, available on video. They were broadcast on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. But would the Democrat, uh, Scott, or excuse me, Tony Evers or the Republican Scott Walker show up? No. Why? They could because you'd think they would feel like they could win or defend their record. But what they're afraid of is that this is an actual open forum. They don't want to answer questions that will be uncomfortable um, and say something that could be turned into a soundbite and then spread all over the media and work against them. It's 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 it's, a, it's not democracy. It's it's not. It's not people getting information and making decisions. That's not what's happening anymore and hasn't for a long time. Well, we heard in that election, I believe it was that election, that uh, Michelle Obama said that we can't, now is not a time to take third parties serious. <laughs> and that hurt so bad because I had supported Obama twice mm -hmm. uh, in both of his runs. And so when I say that I have some liberal background i i really do i i firmly supported john Kerry when i thought maybe in that election ralph nader or, or somebody else was the better candidate um and so i know what it's like to be in the echo chamber of life when you got uh only two options people are telling you you only have two options until you 
at least for me, until you start seeing that there is just something else going on. There's a Phil mm-hmm. Anderson out there. There's a, a, a Joe Kexel. There's another guy in a different county doing something else. But you really got to seek these things out because the two parties do seem to want to keep independents and third parties out of elections. On that topic, I wanted to ask you, because there's been a lot going on in the Libertarian Party, the Mm -hmm. the National Party, even here in Wisconsin, uh, there's always a lot going on. But recently, in the last year, in the last two years, more so than in a long time, it seems like, when I came to the party in 2015, around there, it seemed like there was a lot of hard work to still be done, but it was slowly paying off. There was, you could run as a candidate and really cast a stone out there and create a wave. Uh, but it seems like something different's gone on in the last year. Uh, and a lot of people have talked about the Mises stuff. Um, and I know that's, there's, there's a lot of drama that's gone on. Some people are unhappy about it even still. Uh, but like I was saying, the third parties, the independents, now more than ever, they, they really have the ability to stand out. And uh, do you think there's been anything going on within the Libertarian Party that is uh, changing its direction for the worse because of how good of a direction it was going? Or is it just things are getting shaken up within the party right now? What's going on? I guess you're the one person that I think would be the best, most important person to ask about the Libertarian Party. What is your opinion with everything that's been going on in the last year? Well, uh, let me give a little background. I got, yeah, this is going to be a longer answer, even though I'm relatively well known for giving long answers to short questions. Um, I did serve on the Libertarian National Committee as an alternate for Region 6 for two years. I have been the state party chair. Um, I've been involved in the LPWI, the Libertarian Party of Wisconsin, since 2014. Um, I I do have a, a lot of background in not only how the party interacts in terms of elections and campaigns and candidates, but also the inner workings of what's going on behind the scenes. So uh, you're right. I I can't speak to this. Uh, First of all, I would say in general, the party itself, because of its size, doesn't really have a big effect and isn't in a position in, 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 you know, as far as long as I've been involved and probably before that, where they're really a big help to candidates. Uh, there's not money. And this is somewhat true for the Republican Party. And I imagine the Democratic Party as well. Usually things are operating from the ground up and money is flowing up up the uh, chain rather than down, generally speaking. Uh, But the Libertarian Party in general hasn't meant a huge asset to anyone running for any particular office um, at the national, state level, local level, because people, most people that vote are oblivious to it. Even if they identify as a libertarian, they're generally not involved or aware of what's going on with the LP, like in specific. So um, I learned that right away in 2014 when I ran, I just joined the party and uh, thought there'd be some infrastructure. And I was introduced to some people. I met some people. I don't want to say it's like worthless or whatever, but but uh, I met a lot of people that are now um, involved in the in the LP uh, through my campaigns. And so the people that are uh, helping my campaign now, the hardest, the, the most involved volunteers are people that a couple that I've met through the party, but more so people that I've met through um, campaigning and finding them that way rather than from the party saying, here's where you go to get this done, or here are the people that are going to help you with that. So I learned that early on. And I think it's been useful to understand that, you know, when you're running as a libertarian, you're pretty much building your own campaign and you hope for some help from whatever level of the LP you can, but it's not necessarily going to happen in the same way that it happens with the big parties. Uh, The other part of that too, you mentioned is sort of the ups and downs of, of the LP lately. And I've been relatively caucus agnostic, but for your listeners that might not be aware, um, a caucus was formed in 2017 or 2018 within the Libertarian Party nationally that basically was bringing back the Ron Paul flavor of libertarianism with people that had also subscribed to that in the past. Uh, Tom Woods and the people at the Mises Institute, um, 
there's a large group of people that have written books and teach classes. And Tom Woods is one of them um, who I listen to a lot. He was actually very formative in my understanding of libertarianism and my ability to articulate. Yeah. So um, I'm grateful for that. But the but the the goal of that caucus was to sort of overthrow the people that were involved in the LP at that time uh, through the 2018s into 2020, et cetera. And uh, I really resented that that anything needed to be overthrown. If they wanted to run for chair of the LNC or chairs of state parties or whatever, fine. You know, talk about what you want to do and then do it. We'll vote for you or we won't. It shouldn't be caucus specific, the things that need to get done for uh, for the Libertarian Party. But in fact, their uh, theme or their idea was to really uh, cut loose and uh, disrespect all the people that had been involved previously and want to start from scratch. Well, that hasn't worked. And those of us who knew better knew it wouldn't work because there were a lot of people involved at the at the state level and at the national level in particular who were hard workers and didn't really care about the uh, the caucus stuff. They're ready to help with elections and help with membership drives and give money or whatever. And when the Mises caucus won their elections uh, at the national level um, and kind of did take over the national party, it didn't it hasn't gone as well. I mean, not, uh, the number of donors has gone down. There have been some issues with how the party's been run, the normal struggles, but they're clearly uh, could you could benefit from expertise of previous administrations and the people that they turned off and devalued when they took over. So at the national level, things aren't going great, but in Wisconsin, it doesn't matter. There's been no uh, takeover of the state party by people associated with the Mises caucus. Our current chair used to be, but he's not involved now. Um, there's been none of that here. And, and I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, there's many, many states where Mises folks are now uh, in charge. But in Wisconsin, it didn't happen. And um, I think that's, you know, uh, largely because the people that have been involved have been caucus agnostic to for, to, for the most part. And that we, those of us who've been involved for a long time have tried to keep the focus on, we have work to do regardless of caucus. We need to grow membership. We need to support uh, campaigns. We need to, you know, fix our website. We need to, whatever, whatever initiative is going on, we've been focused on the work and not on the title of the person that's, you know, in charge. So as far as the state party is right now, we'll, we'll always struggle with membership, I think, because we're in a very small minority plus a lot of libertarians uh, do their own thing. That's kind of the nature of the ideology is that you're somewhat independent and subscribing to a party. You know, if there's one bit of disagreement, it turns you off to a certain extent in the same way that doesn't work for Democrats and Republicans. So there'll always be a smaller party, libertarian party at the state level and the national level. But that's not a problem. That's just what we have to work with. And so the whole history of it for the last however many years I've been involved statewide and national it's not irrelevant, but it hasn't impacted the ability of candidates to get elected because so few people are aware of the LP as a party. And even, you know, even fewer than that are aware of uh, the, the issues and the struggles with, you know, between factions in the, in the, in the Libertarian Party. I, I really appreciate your response on that. Uh, I was, you know, on that same topic, moving forward, um, I'm always thinking uh, because of some of the issues that have gone on within the party the 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 ups and downs i'm i've considered you know what's the future as an independent candidate uh Mm -hmm. what's the future like in politics in general because it seems that uh, what we see with the two-party system is a gang mentality jesse ventura says all kinds of weird stuff but one thing he said that was that resonates really good is he described it as a gang mentality Mm -hmm. and so when we get to an election and we see everybody gang up on this side versus that side, and even the small factions, we got libertarians that have to gang up and sometimes do things that other libertarians don't agree with, but it all resorts and windles down to a gang mentality. So the future, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this, uh, for independent candidate candidates in general, I know there's been a lot of talk about, uh, even from, Currently elected representatives here in southern Wisconsin have talked about the uh, ranked choice voting and getting other parties included in elections in that way. 
but what do you see as the future of elections? What do you see happening like in the next 10 years in terms of small changes that could actually happen? Well, I, I, I 100% support ranked choice voting or anything other than what we have now because it really locks in the whole wasted vote syndrome or the wasted vote rationale. And I'm sure your your listeners are aware of this, but often people feel like not happy about voting for who, for who they're voting for, but they're voting because they don't want this other person elected. And that's, that's the, the biggest example of that historically so far has been Donald Trump. You can't let that guy back as president. So you'll vote for senile, corrupt, 40-year liar or more Joe Biden, you know, because we can't have Trump or vice versa. The, that has been... Uh, there are nonprofits that are working to to fight for ranked choice voting or other voting systems. Uh, occasionally, we'll find a, a state legislator that's sympathetic, but once they bring it to committee or to the higher ups in their party, it immediately immediately gets snuffed out for the very reasons you've already talked about, and that is this gang mentality. Why would they let an independent candidate uh, get any kind of traction? A third party candidate, whoever they don't want. Um, other voices. They don't want inconvenient, uncomfortable questions being asked. And they certainly would rather have the the uh, the uh, uh, don't waste your vote mentality than have it show up that there's a, a independent candidate, libertarian, Green Party, whoever, that showed up in second place with a significant number of votes. I mean, I guarantee you in 2016, if there had been ranked choice voting in the presidential election, Gary Johnson would have finished second for sure. It, instead of being whatever it was, uh, 52-48 or whatever it was, or 52-45 with Gary getting mm -hmm. three, it would have been like 45, uh, I don't know what it would have been. I'm not, I'm not doing the math very well right now, but no, I got you. What I mean. there would have been, there would have been able to be recorded a public record of support for somebody that wasn't part of the duopoly and they don't want that. Right. They'd rather have it be this fake game of, are you a Republican or a Democrat rather than have anyone up there involved on paper, on election record, whatever, in a debate showing evidence that there's a dissent to the two party system itself, because the two party system is what enables all those corrupting, you know, uh, uh, corporations and unions and lobbies and whatever to operate. If there's three parties and there's one party, especially the Libertarian Party, that's against that sort of thing then that's ruining their whole game. So it'll never happen in that way. But my hopefulness is and uh, that we need to fight for independent media and to make sure that our choices for sources of news aren't throttled. We know that the mainstream media is biased one way or another, that they're getting their information from, uh, from the parties. It's all been sanitized. We also now know recently that for sure Operation Mockingbird has been started back up by the CIA quite a number of years ago, which is they plant CIA people at media outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, CNBC, Fox, whatever, uh, to push stories into the mainstream media that serve the purposes of keeping us divided and supporting initiatives like the war in Ukraine or whatever. So all that is at play, but there are people like, uh, and I'm not endorsing any of these in particular, but uh, like Joe Rogan, uh, Bill Maher, um, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, um, Reese Wood, uh, people that are looking for truth and have, and you'll be there someday, Reese, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, Joe Rogan has like, I don't know, a hundred million listeners a day or 50 million listeners a day or something like yeah. that. He's, he's got 10 times the reach that Tucker Carlson does. Well, Tucker's not a bad example. I guess, because he's gone independent. But that is where people are getting their politics from now, more so than the mainstream media. So as long as people like that can operate independently and aren't kicked off platforms or deplatformed or, you know, uh, again, I'm going to bring up my opponent, Tammy Baldwin. She tried to uh, make TikTok illegal by the Restrict Act that she brags about sponsoring a couple months ago that would have made TikTok unavailable to people in the United States of America. Well, if I want to get my news from TikTok, that should be my right. That's the, my First Amendment right to get news from wherever I want. And I personally would rather have the communists in China have my personal information than the United States government have it. If that's the trade-off and I'm off off the off the grid or whatever, and uh, China's got my personal information, what are they going to do with it? Well, it might make them a little more effective at um, 
marketing goods and services to me. But but when the United States government has your, you know, has all your information like they do through Google and to a certain extent, sometimes through Apple, um, they can arrest you. They can make you a dissident. They can do all kinds of things to you. So we need to continue to have open sources of information and let the public, let individuals choose the truth of what they're reading and hearing, decide for themselves based on their own experience, their own philosophies, their own beliefs, whether something is true or not or good or not, and have plenty of information coming into them so they can make those decisions. And as long as we have that, then I think more and more people will choose independent media because they can see, they can sense that these are real people bringing this to them and not corporate suits or pantsuits. Um, and that, that there's an element of truth behind it. And while people like you and Joe Rogan and Bill Maher and uh, that British guy whose name I always forget, who I love, um, what's his name? He used to be a comedian. Doesn't matter. Oh, man. You uh, got me. Russell Brand. People, oh, okay. They, yep. These are flawed people and they admit their flaws, but that makes them more believable and that should make them more believable as opposed to Anderson Cooper or whoever. So that's that's my hope right. for future elections is that people are getting news and inform, you know information about things that hasn't gone through the government sanitization uh, process that, that keeps them divided and ignorant. That's great. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, I know you kind of gave a lot of uh, things that for people to check out, like you said, Bill Mars doing stuff, Rogan, all the independent media sources out there, definitely check out all those. Is there any other outlets you recommend to people or one last thing, you important message you'd like to leave with listeners and viewers? Well, yes. Things aren't going to change unless people get a little more active in their desire for them to change. So then this has been a theme with me uh, on social media for my very first election cycle. And that is, it's all well and good to like a post to be sympathetic to a tweet, uh, like a tweet, whatever. But if you really care about what's going on with this country, you need to retweet or repost or share and at least, at least express some sort of dissent with the way things are and the way the two parties have governed things for you know, since the late 50s or early 60s when the military industrial complex took over, express some skepticism. You don't have to take a side. If you're already if you're listening to this podcast, and you're already uh, you're a Trump supporter, you're a Biden supporter, whatever. Great. But I think you'd agree still. And even you as somebody that that uh, supported uh, Barack Obama in 2008, when he was running, he talked about descheduling marijuana and closing Guantanamo Bay and a host of other things, bringing the troops didn't home. happen. It didn't happen. Well, and not because necessarily he didn't mean that. He may have meant that. I don't know. But he wasn't allowed to because the president is in control of things. The two, the, the donor class, the, the banking system, the military industrial complex are what's really in control of our government. So it's fair as a Republican, lifelong a person might be, or Democrat or whatever to say, things never seem to change. Why don't we at least open up the debate to third party candidates. Let's have this more an open, transparent, more information coming in and not just locked down by it'll probably be Trump and Biden or whoever. Have it all locked down and not have choice because you can't have choice unless you're fully informed. And the American public isn't fully informed. So what I ask of your listeners right now is to do your own exploration, to look at the evidence in your own life and in the history of our country in the last I don't know, back to back to back to JFK, maybe, maybe before and say, what has really changed? And, and hopefully see, as I see, and what I think is the fact that there's been a steady march for more government, more uh, invasive government, more warlike government, more separation of citizens, more hate between citizens, less prosperity, less transparency, more corruption, regardless of whether there's a Republican in office or a Democrat in office, no matter what they say, this constant march of history has taken place. So inform yourselves and at least express, hey, there's this isn't working. Let's at least talk to these other people, libertarians, greens, socialists, uh, forward party, it doesn't matter. Introduce them to the conversation and start questioning what's going on and see what the problem is. And I'm 100% sure that as you listeners do that, and anyone who listens to this, uh, or, or anyone who's curious does that, that you'll see that there's at least some things to be alarmed about and concerned about with the way things are going. 
and you'll agree that we need more voices in the conversation. And, it, and if that means that people like you and me get invited to debates with, with the big party candidates and they're actually there, all the better. If it means that newspapers are covering us along with other candidates, despite the fact that we might be polling a little bit lower, all the better. That's the sort of, you know, that's the sort of uh, what we the traction that we need to get things going and be inserted in the conversation. And I believe, I know you believe it too, that once we are in a position where libertarian ideas, which aren't just about individuals, but about everything being by cooperation and consent, uh, and the systems that do work now that that the government's not terribly involved in and have done very, very well are examples of way that we can work together in the future and our descent to this idea that people should always be looking for government to solve their problems because it, it hasn't, it doesn't, it's not interested in that. It's only interested in lining the pockets of those who pay for it. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on, Phil, and maybe we'll have you back in the future. I know you're always up to something and <laughs> busy guy, but really yeah, appreciate well, you coming on. And, and if people want to follow along the campaign, uh, Anderson for us Senate.com or uh, disrupt the corruption.com takes you there too. Uh, find me on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, there'll be a, a TikTok channel coming up soon. Um, if you're just interested in seeing what I have to say in regards to the other two parties and to my, to my opponents, then that's the best place because you'll find all my content there. And then, uh, you know, the election is not till November of next year, but uh, we're starting early. We are uh, have a, a pretty good sized group of monthly donors already. We haven't raised a ton of money yet, but we're really ahead of the curve in terms of getting the campaign organized and funded. So if you're interested in supporting, then you know where to find me too. Awesome. Thanks again, Phil.